We haven't sung this song in a while here at Park Hills Baptist Church. Um, as I meditated this week in preparation for setting up the service and meditating on the words of that song, how sweet and awful is a place, um, it has this image of a feast. Um, and I know for, for Baptists in particular, feasts and food is wonderful. Um, but in the song, the picture of a feast is actually a picture of the gospel. And in particular, I love the, the, the way in the four stands after, after saying, why was it that, that I was drawn in while others still would rather choose to starve than come to this feast? The, the four stands of the song says, it was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we would have still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Friends, it is the love of God that constrained us, that drew us in. And it is because of that love that we have the, the desire and ask the Lord, Lord, constrain your earth to come. Constrain, make it so that your word will bring the people to you. And that's our hope, desire, our halt, heart's desire this morning as well. Well, friends, um, as we are looking at the book of Titus, encourage you to open your scriptures to Titus chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. And as you, you are opening there, I want to let you know about a common feature in our world today. Um, organizations and companies and nonprofits often have a purpose statement, a statement that captures in a few words the mission of that organization. Some call it a vision statement. Some call it a purpose statement or a mission statement. Um, did you know that we as a church also have a, a mission statement and it's inspired by the words of Paul in Colossians 1.28 and our mission statement says we exist to glorify God by proclaiming Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Such sentences like this one captures in a succinct way um, what we are about as a congregation. Well, Titus, in the book of Titus, Paul gives us a summary statement of why he was sent to be an apostle. What was his mission statement in being sent out? And this morning we want to look at um, this mission statement and to see what, he was, what Paul was sent to accomplish. Uh, for, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. 
And so would you join me in a word of prayer as we ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Father, thank you for giving us your truth, the revelation of who you are, the revelation of the salvation that you have made available to us, and the, the truth about how your people have been spreading this word out. Father, we pray that as we hear your truth now, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. We pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would illumine us. You would help us understand your truth and help us to apply it in our hearts. We pray this for the glory of Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, last week, well, let me just say this. Last week, we began working through a new book series, and that book is the book of Titus. For those of you who are visiting us this morning, um, one of the desires, one of the things we like doing at Park Hills is to preach the Word expositionally by taking a book at a time and just working through a particular book at a time. And our heart's desire, last week, we uh, started the book of Titus. And uh, our desire is when we work through, through books like, like, like these, uh, and any books of the Bible, that we would not just take away some application for us, but we would understand what, what the book is about. And last week, we did an overview of what the book is about. And this morning, we're starting to look at the, at the introduction. Um, this, just to review what the book is about, to help us understand, um, if you missed last week, um, the book of Titus, we could say, is about four big ideas, four big truths. It's about establishing order in the church. It's about setting up the right leadership. It's about sound doctrine leading to godliness. And it's about the importance of these truths for the life of the church. Now, of these four truths, of these four big ideas, the one that gets most attention in the book of Titus is the third point, that sound doctrine leads to godliness. And thus, we could summarize the entire book of Titus with this overarching theme, Sound doctrine leads to godliness. Now today, as we begin to look at the introduction of this book, um, I would like for us to, to see how um, this is a personal letter, uh, a letter from Paul to Titus. And we see in these verses some elements of, of letter writing. Um, things like, who is writing? To whom is a letter addressed? And the greetings. And actually this morning, that's all we'll spend and look at uh, this morning. The, the introduction of this letter. All of Paul, Paul's letters have these elements of who's writing, to who, and the greetings. But Paul's introductions are never just about who's writing to whom. He uses his introductions intentionally to prepare the readers for what's coming in the letter. Uh, Paul is never wasting a word even when he introduces himself, even when he describes the people to whom he's writing. Uh, and oftentimes he will uh, include in his introductions some biblical truth, either about God, or about his apostleship, or about his readers, about the recipients, what God has done in them, or about Paul's work, or Paul would often introduce and include some type of prayer, telling the believers telling the recipients what he is praying for them at the beginning of the letter. An interesting study for you to go home and check out. Read through all of Paul's letters and just read the introductions. 
Just read how Paul introduces every letter and compare those letters and see how there's something different. There's a different flavor in each introduction because it sets the way for the rest of the letter. Well, in Titus, what's unique in the introduction to this letter is that Paul is describing why he was commissioned as an apostle. This is the only time in all his letters, in the introduction of the letters, when he is speaking about the purpose why he was sent as an apostle. The only time when he's speaking about the results of his apostleship, the, the, what he aims to accomplish for being sent. So this morning, dear friends, we want to look at how Paul describes his mission. And if you're, if you're new to Christianity or if you're visiting this morning, you're not a Christian, you're, you may know some things about Christianity, uh, this passage would actually give us a really good overview about what is, what is Christianity about. Because we are going to look at one of the major apostles in the first century who was entrusted by God to go to be sent out to the nations and to communicate God's truth. A wonderful way for us to understand a, a broad picture of what Christianity is about. So why was Paul sent as an apostle? We'll look at three things this morning from this passage. He was sent, first of all, he was sent for the faith of God's elect. He was sent for the faith of God's elect. Paul begins with the words, Paul, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle was someone who was sent on a mission by someone else, representing someone else, and speaking on someone else's behalf as if he was that person. Now, why was Paul sent by Jesus, representing Jesus? Notice in verse 1, there are two phrases that describe the purpose why Paul was sent. The first phrase is, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul was sent as an apostle on a mission so that God's elect may come to faith that they may come to rely upon Christ for their salvation and to live a life of faith. Now, friends, the, the, the phrase God's elect um, sometimes throws off some people. Um, the phrase God's elect appears elsewhere in the New Testament to describe Christians and to point out that they are Christians because God has chosen them. Who chose them? God. They are people whom God has chosen. Elected. Uh, for example, in Romans chapter 8, verses, uh, verse 33, Paul asks, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, he's referring to, to Christians. The notion of God's chosen people, or the notion of a people chosen by God, appears first of all in the New Testament. I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, describing the people of Israel. But now, Paul makes it very clear that God's chosen people is no longer limited to the nation of Israel, but to all who put their faith in Christ. An example of this is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where Peter describes Christians with images or with words, with expressions that were used and given, first of all, to Israel in the book of Exodus. After Israel was, was rescued from Egypt, after they were, 
they were saved from their enslavery uh, to Egypt. They come to, to Mount Sinai, and God addresses them, and he calls them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And those same images, those same expressions, are used of Peter in 1 Peter to speak to Christians. And 1 Peter says in, in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Friends, these expressions used by God in the Old Testament to describe Israel are now applied both to Jews and to Gentiles alike when they put their faith in Christ. So Paul was sent to be an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Sometimes people say or, or ask, well, how do I know, if, uh, how do I know if, if I'm part of God's elect? Well, the answer is, if you put your faith in Christ. The elect of God are people who put their faith in Christ. Just as in, in the book of Acts, uh, at one point in chapter 13, verse 48, uh, we are told uh, at, of one experience where the gospel was preached among the Gentiles, and they, they came to, to, to receive the gospel. They embraced the gospel by faith. And, and Luke uh, describes this experience in Acts 13, 48, and says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God's elect are people who come to faith in Christ. Uh, they may not come to believe when we want them to believe. God has his timing when they do so. But they are people who come to believe in Christ and put their faith. And Paul was sent so that they may come to believe. Paul was sent so that they may have the opportunity to actually, and the means to hear the gospel, so that through the preaching of the gospel, they may actually believe. How will they believe if they will not hear? How will they hear if no one is sent? Paul says, I was sent so they may believe. You know, Jesus says a very similar truth uh, in John 10, 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And then he says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And he was speaking at that time of the, of, of the fold of the nation of Israel. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Do you hear the certainty of Jesus? When he says, my sheep will listen. I will bring them. And then we will be, or they will be, they will, they will be one flock, one shepherd. God's elect are people who will listen to the call of Christ, to his voice. And when they listen and come to Christ, they are added to the flock of Christ. And Christ is building up that flock, and he is their shepherd. He is our shepherd. Now, friends, I want to point out to you a truth. that The Bible never commands us to figure out if we are the elect. Instead, it commands all of us to repent of our sin, to turn away from our sin, and call on the name of Jesus Christ to save us. Christ is our only way, the only way for any sinner to be made right with God. Friends, don't ask yourself, am I part of God's elect? Rather, ask yourself, have I come to put my reliance upon Christ to save me? Have I turned my life from my self-centered, 
sinful, rebellious ways, ignorant ways, and have I turned my, my, my life to pursue God, to follow God? And, and in that turning, have I put my reliance upon Jesus because He is the only way by which I can be made right with God? Friends, if you have not responded to the gospel, if you have not repented of your sin or trusted in Christ, I want to encourage you today, as we're gathered here, I want to encourage you, would you, would you repent of your sin and trust in Christ? Surrender the control of your life. Surrender your life to, to God, to Christ, and find your full rest and for your full reliance upon the sacrifice of Jesus. If you'd like to know more about that, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. I'd love to speak to you, or, or I'd encourage you to speak to someone else who's a Christian, who, who you know, perhaps right next to you, and talk to them about these matters. Now, for all of us who have put our faith in Christ, for all of us who have repented of our sin and trusted in Jesus, oh, friends, for all of us who have become true children of God by faith, the Bible calls us God's elect. The faith of God's elect. Because God's elect become people of faith. Friends, take encouragement from this emphasis in Paul's life. He was sent out so that people may come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who do come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are revealed to be God's chosen people. This certainty of faith for God's elect is seen also in the words of Jesus in John 6, uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 37, where Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. An example of someone who has received the faith, an example of someone who has come to Jesus and, and God did not, or Jesus did not cast him out, is Titus. Titus is, is one of the people whom, who has called on the name of the Lord to be saved. And Jesus did not turn his back on Titus. Now here's what's interesting about Titus. Titus wasn't a Jew. Titus wasn't a circumcised man. And nevertheless, when Paul describes Titus in verse 4, look at how Paul describes Titus in verse 4. My true child, my genuine child. Now, Paul and Titus were not relatives, friends. Paul doesn't call Titus because somehow they had any blood relations. Yet Paul considers Titus as his own family member. Now, that's strange. And what's even more strange is that they're not even, as I said, they're not even Jews. Jews and Gentiles had nothing in common. They're not supposed to eat meals together. They're not supposed to, to share a lot of customs of how to live life. And yet, despite of all that, now Paul calls Titus my true child. Not just even a friend, my true child. On what basis? On what basis? On the basis of the faith they each had. It was a common faith. Paul was sent for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And when, God, when, when people respond to this faith, to, to this news of the gospel, and they put their faith in Christ, they now become a spiritual family with one another. And even those who are totally different, even those who have nothing in common 
or very little in common. Friends, such people become a spiritual family. Friends, that's what's the experience of the church. That's the experience of the church. We are a spiritual family. And we live out the things that a, a family does. We gather together on a regular basis. We even eat together. We talk about what's going on in our lives. We know about each other. When someone is going through a difficulty, we, we go and seek ways to, to, to encourage. When someone is in the hospital, we go and visit. Just the mere presence of seeing someone in the hospital is an encouragement. When someone goes off the path, when someone is tempted and falls in temptation, we're there to help and, and restore and confront in love and, and kindness and gentleness to bring back a wanderer. Friends, we are a spiritual family. That's what church is. I was telling the folks who uh, are in our membership seminar this weekend, yesterday and, and this afternoon, but yesterday in particular, we are talking about what the church is and what the church is not. One of the things the church is not, it is not a place that provides services. We're not a service provider. We're also not a club. We're a spiritual family. And we do things together as a family. Why? Because we have a common faith. And that common faith brings us together. Paul's purpose, he was sent out for the sake of the faith of God's elect. But that's not the only thing he was sent out for. The second purpose is for the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. For the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. God's elect need not only faith, but the knowledge of the truth. As a matter of fact, let's be very clear, the faith Christians have is not a belief in what is not true. Christians believe what is true. Sometimes people have to believe something that it's not true. Christian faith is not a belief in that which is not true. Christian faith is grounded upon the knowledge of the truth. And when we hear that truth, we come to, to believe it because of the work of the Spirit in our lives. But notice how Paul describes this truth in verse 1. He says, it's a knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Or another way to understand it is, it's a knowledge of the truth which produces godliness. Godliness refers to a life which resembles God's character. It's a life that fears God out of gratitude. It's a life that serves God out of gratitude. It's a life that lives for God and lives according to God's ways out of gratitude. There are people who like the idea of truth. There are people who like the idea, even the idea of the gospel, but they don't like the godliness that the gospel produces in us. There are people who like the idea of being saved and going to heaven. They're not too crazy about being saved from their sins. They're not too crazy about being saved from the ways of sin. If they could hold on to salvation or, or, or believe in salvation and hold on to, to their ways of sin as well. But the truth of the gospel which Paul preaches and which he now brings 
to Titus again and to the people of Crete is that it's a truth which accords with godliness. It's a truth, it's a gospel which produces in us godliness. Our friends, realize that the truth which leads us to salvation is a truth that doesn't just save us from the penalty of sin. It's a truth that also saves us from the power of sin so that we may no longer have to sin. Look at Romans. In, in, well, you don't have to turn there, but you know, write down Romans 6, 17 and 18. Here's what Paul says in, in, in Romans 6, 17 and 18. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. And the letter of Titus will unpack this connection between truth and godliness, the godliness which results from this truth. Friends, let me ask you, do we preach a gospel that is merely a ticket to heaven? Do we preach a gospel that is merely an escape of the judgment of God, but not a means of rescuing us from our sinful passions? Paul's commission as an apostle was aimed at helping people to make this connection between truth, the truth of the gospel, and the godliness which comes from it. If you're a Christian, if you are a Christian, do you have a knowledge of the truth which accords to godliness? Or do you have a knowledge of the truth that leaves you where you are? Also, Paul never thought of faith in the gospel and knowledge of the truth as separate. Today, Christians and even churches would separate these hopes of faith and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Today, we separate these in, in evangelism and, and discipleship, in conversion and sanctification. Friends, Paul was sent to be an apostle to pursue both, to do both. It was not just faith. It was not just the knowledge of the truth, but both together. Actually, friends, a life of godliness will often be a powerful testimony to the power of God's grace to save us. You want to see the power of the gospel in someone's life? Look at someone who's been in his sin, and God has brought him out of their sin because of the gospel. You'll see the power of the gospel. I, uh, I often um, hear, or in the past I used to hear from from one of our members who has recently been converted here in our own congregation. And uh, in, in her conversations with her, with her caseworkers and people who would come to help her counsel her, and these were non-Christians, um, would be amazed at the kind of changes that, that she's experiencing. And they, they don't have a category because people who have that kind of experience, that kind of past, don't get out of it. It's the power of the gospel to change. And therefore, godliness, dear friends, commends the gospel. Godliness puts on display the power, the true power that the gospel of Jesus Christ is able to rescue us from actual sin. Not just from the idea of sin, not just from the inclinations of sin, but from actual sin. But friends, I encourage you, don't, don't, don't separate the faith and the knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness. Now, it's true that sometimes people who pursue, people who, who pursue um, the knowledge of the truth, which of course is godliness, um, sometimes pursue it 
as a detour from being more evangelistic. They would say, listen, I, I'm, I'm not the evangelist type. I, I just love the Bible studies. So I, that's just me. Other people really pursue the, the evangelism, but they're just not big into this whole growing in godliness. Um, they're just, man, just get people, just get people in. Um, and they're saying people oftentimes choose between these two boats as if either you're one or the other. Friends, that kind of choice is, first of all, not biblical. A good a godly life will, be, will not be apathetic towards evangelism. And an evangelistic life will not stop at mere faith. Will go on to teach the truth, the knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness. So that both of these aspects are held together. Paul was supposed and sent to do both. So, Paul was sent to be an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect, for the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. But there's a third point that Paul tells us why these two goals, why, what's behind them? I mean, these are the goals that he, why he was sent, but what's going on behind them? What's the ultimate destination of both of these? There's an underlying foundation and an, and an overall destination. It's both a foundation and a destination. The faith of God's elect and their life of godliness is anchored in a great hope. And this is the third point that Paul emphasizes here in this introduction. The hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life. Look at how in verse 1, he describes his mission, the purpose of his mission. And then in verse 2, Paul says, and let's, let's read again. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And then in verse 2, in hope of eternal life. Paul will refer to this hope of eternal life again at the end of the, of the letter to Titus in chapter 3. Both faith, the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth are to be anchored in the hope of eternal life. This is the ultimate destination as well. Our godliness here on earth is a manifestation of what we are made, of our hope that we are made for another life, one that will never end. You know, some, people, some people may respond to the gospel so that they could go to heaven when they die. But they have no real hope. For eternal life. They like to know that they'll go to heaven when they die, in the sense like, a, like a, okay, I'll, I'll go to another place. I got that secured. But that eternal life is not a hope that they look forward to. They're looking with, to it, if anything, they're looking to it with regret for losing this life. Now, of course, we all can experience regret leaving behind our loved ones. And the pain of separation would be deep for any of us. There's no question about that. But we live this present life, dear friends, in the hope of living the eternal one. We look forward to that. We live in this life knowing that we were not created for a life that ends in death. Can you imagine a life where we will no longer be tempted to sin? Can you imagine a life where we will no longer sin against one another? Well, let me bring it even more closer home. You might feel this one better. 
Can you imagine a life where others will no longer sin against you? A life where all the effects of sin will be put away. No more tears. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No pain anymore. For the former things will have passed away. Can you imagine? Christian, do you think about that hope? Do you look forward to that hope to be a reality? Christian parents, do your children ever hear you talk about your hope for eternal life? Sometimes people talk about their hopes for retirement or their hopes for better days in the future. College students, you may be talking about your hopes for when you will be graduated and having a, go a good job and a, a really well-paid job, and, and you're talking about your hopes for the future. But friends, do other people around us, if we are Christians, do other people around us hear us talk about the hope for eternal life? Recently, we started being more intentional with our kids um, in talking to them about heaven and why we should look forward to heaven. It's our ultimate desire to be in the presence of God forever and ever, and we will see all of God's people there together. And it's been sweet, very sweet, to see how just in a few weeks after that we started seeing in our children or hearing them in their own prayers how they talk about wanting to go to heaven. They have hopes. Friends, we need to be people, if, if we have hope for eternal life, let that hope be manifested. Talk about it. Yeah, we understand. We, we appreciate what God gives us in this life. We don't want to just escape this life. We want to enjoy what God gives us in the here and the now. We want to take everything with gratitude. But at the same time, we want to talk about the life that we are looking forward to experience when all presence of sin, when all effects of sin will be put away. Now, what does Paul tell us about this hope of eternal life? Look at verse 2. A few things Paul tells us about this hope of eternal life. He says in verse 2, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. In other words, God promised this eternal life not after the fall of Adam and Eve. The promise of eternal life was not a B plan after the garden. The promise of eternal life was made before time began. Friends, this shows us how serious God was about promising His creation eternal life despite his knowledge of the coming fall into sin. God was determined from the very beginning of time to be sure that the people whom he is creating will inherit eternity with him. God also, the second thing Paul tells us is that God manifested this hope for eternal life through in, in his word through preaching. Look at verse, verse 3. And at the proper time, manifested, God manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. And specifically, how did God know or make known this promise of eternal life? Well, we could say through Jesus Christ. Absolutely. That would be very true. 
the life of Jesus, or we could say even through the, through the foreshadowing of the prophets in the Old Testament, it was foreshadowed that he would come. Jesus fulfilled it. But now Paul tells us that the full explanation of this promise and where the, 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 the anticipation was made, where the fulfillment was made, and now it's being delivered, all of that is encapsulated in the preaching that was entrusted to Paul. Paul wanted Titus and the believers of Crete to know that when he was among them preaching, perhaps on some island near a shore, when Paul was actually just preaching to them, talking to them, and some of those sermons, some of Paul's sermons were long, some may have been short. Uh, some of Paul's sermons were in big gatherings, others were in, in small houses. Whenever Paul opened his mouth to preach, he was uttering the word of God. And God used that word, that preaching of the word, to make the hope of eternal life manifest. Oh, friends, it's amazing that God would communicate to us the hope of eternal life through preaching. If you ever thought, what's the point of, the pre of preaching? What's the point of listening to preaching? What's the point of gathering to hear Someone get up there and, and preach, and sometimes he's long. And actually, most of the time, he's long. What's the point of that? Well, here's the point. If whoever is preaching, and I'm not talking just in this pulpit, but whoever is preaching is speaking the word of God, it is the word of hope for eternal life for us. God made it manifest throughout through it. And in this letter, even the letter of Titus is written ultimately to help us set our hope on the eternal life that we have in Christ. In light of that hope, we can live in godliness here and now. So this morning, friends, we looked at Paul's introduction. Um, we, we're going to stop at this, just at this introduction. We saw how his emphasis in this introduction is a description of why he was sent to be an apostle. And he will teach us in the rest of this letter that sound doctrine leads to godliness. He wants us to understand that this purpose of sound doctrine leading to godliness is part of the very purpose for which he was sent. Paul was sent for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul was sent for the sake of the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And both of these purposes are ultimately founded in and aimed at the hope of eternal life. Friends, as a local church, we are called to live out these same priorities, these same purposes for which Paul was sent. And my prayer, my prayer as a congregation is that all we do in what we labor and what we do as a church is that we would labor and work for the faith of God's elect, for the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, and all of that in the hope of of eternal life. Would you pray with me? Oh God, you are great. Your powers, your knowledge, your sovereignty are so unfathomable. From the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, you have made your promise for eternal life. And you are a God who never lies. Now you have made that promise manifested and known in your word through the preaching 
of your servants. Oh, great God, we want to humble ourselves before your word. We want to humble ourselves and, and receive this truth. We want to receive your promises. We want to hold on to them. We want to embrace them. We want to respond to them, and we want to live our lives in light of them. Oh, God, help us to do so. Help us to live our lives to further the faith of, God, of your people and to grow in the godliness which your truth leads us into. We pray this in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.